My guest today is Molly Grossman. Molly is based in London and she is a, a manager of sales development for Outreach. Molly, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Paul, for having me. It's my pleasure. Tell me a little bit uh, where you grew up, Molly. Just, uh, I, I believe you're obviously English, but it was your, your accent is kind of southeast. So I'm curious to know. <laughs> And, and early influences. <laughs> yeah, sure. So I am a London born and bred. Um, yeah, grew up in northwest London. Um, I come from a Jewish family, which is no surprise to anyone who knows northwest London. That's Finchley um, area. Yeah, yeah, Finchley. I grew up in Hampstead, so very close okay. to Finchley. Yeah. I lived for um, a summer in Finchley. And I traveled, I was working just an orderly in a, in a, in a hospital in oh, wow. uh, near Shepherd's Bush. And then I, oh, I, nice. I lived there. And uh, yeah, that, 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 that was an interesting night. It's a, it's a nice neighborhood. Yeah, it's very lovely. It's very, um, it's a lot of families, a lot of young families. Um, I know everyone kind of when if they move to London, they typically move south of the river. Well, I know it's a lot mm. trendier. Um, but yeah, no, Northwest London, we like to say if you're from Northwest London, it's a bit like a bubble. You don't know any other areas of London. So people are always shocked when they name other places. I'm like, where is that? I've never heard of it. And I, I did grow up in London and that's, yeah, I know it's, it's, it's bad, Paul. I'm curious why, <laughs> I'm curious why is that? I think, um, I think particularly like if you come from like a religious community, um, you tend to just stay in that geographical mm. area. Mm. So I was able to go to school in that area. My friends were all from that area. Um, and unless it was for kind of like an occasion and awful as it sounds, there was never really a reason to leave or to move outside mm. because mm. your whole family and social network is in that kind of bubble. Mm. Did you have a particularly religious upbringing? Um, no, I didn't. I didn't have a religious upbringing, but um, no matter how unreligious you are, you're still, if you are Jewish, you're still Jewish. So even Contra if... religious. Yeah, exactly, which mm. I know lots of people are shocked when I meet them and I say, oh, I'm Jewish, and they're like... I saw you eat, eating a bacon sandwich the other day. I'm like, yeah, that is true. <laughs> I do love a bacon sandwich. Yeah. Um, but no, I, but I went. Funny, I think, yeah. yeah, that's one of those myths, I think, a lot. I mean, there's obviously there's people who take those things seriously, but I think the majority of people I've worked with, many Jewish people over the years, and they'll say, look, we do those on holidays, on traditions, on, on family occasions, like we'd eat turkey for Christmas. But that's, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. It's, yeah. That's, no. And, and, and so I'm, I'm curious to know how you're that upbringing in a kind of a, a tighter knit community where there's a there's a subculture. So you have an English culture and then you have that sort of Jewish community, how that might have influenced the choices you made in terms of career when you were younger. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so I, I, I grew up. I went to a Orthodox Jewish school, despite not being particularly religious myself. Mm. Um, and that was more for just the educate, like the good, they had a really good standard of, an ed of education at the school. Mm. Um, 
But when you grow up in a community that has, you know, a really intense work ethic, and there is a really intense work ethic in the Jewish community, it's kind of a, we're not hand, you're not handed anything. Um, so you need to work hard for it and you need mm. to be the best at it. Otherwise, you're going to be the first to go kind of mentality just because when you are brought up with ancestors who went through certain things, that's mm. really kind of bled into you from a really young age. Yeah. Um, so I think a Jewish person will think, whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to try and be the absolute best at it. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what's kind of guided me. That's interesting because I would have, if I think, say, people often talk about the Protestant work ethic, and yeah. if you look at what's behind that, it's that in, in Protestantism, whatever flavor you have of it, there's a sense of people, if you work hard, there's a reward in the next life. Where the Catholic one is very different, it's all about suffering. <laughs> and, and, it's the complete, and, 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 and that's why I asked the question is in terms of because how that influences choices we make and how we perceive ourselves is quite interesting. And I'm, and I'm curious to know where the, you talk about the Jewish work ethic, where it comes from. Is it the same? Is it sort of a, a reward in another life or is there some other driver for it? Oh, no, we're not. Well, it, it's not a reward in the next life. It's, it's not that. It's kind of a survival in this life. Um, I think that's, that's it, the crux of it. And I think it's, mm. I think it's similar for like a lot of people who come from immigrants, like mm. obviously my whole family, you know, trace back are from all over the world. So I love when people say, you know, where are your parents from? And I'm like, have you got 15 minutes? Cause you know, there's a lot of places involved. Mm. Um, and I, I honestly, I do think it's just kind of like a survival aspect more than anything. Mm. Um, and working your way up. Um, but I mean, I think if you're looking at my job now, like in sales, called Jewish job, like it's more about stability and, you know, have a good, be a lawyer, be an accountant. I'm sure we all know all the very typical Jewish jobs that there are. Um, and sales, to be honest, isn't really one of them. Uh. Yeah, and again, that's interesting because often that comes from past. I, my parents grew up during the Second World War. They were sort of in their early 20s, and they had a huge thing on security. So mm -hmm. we were often, you know, as kids, get a job in the public service, you know, be, be a guard, a nurse, doctor. It was always about just get a secure job, keep your head down, 40 years later, get your pension. Yeah. And that, that's not sales. <laughs> that's not sales at all. You're, you're secure from one quarter to the next, just about. Yeah, no, completely, definitely. And I think um, I think that when I look at my parents and I look at my grandparents, it was clear that that was kind of what would guide them. Mm. As And it's because obviously, as the you kind of are born in the country and you're no longer a first generation immigrant or you're not mm. a second generation immigrant, mm. that kind of relaxes a bit and you're mm. able to kind of have more freedoms because there's more security at home for you to fall back on if necessary. Mm -hmm. So um, talk to me then about the journey from orthodox schooling to outreach. Because there's a few dots there I think that have to be connected. It's a confusing one. Um, so I didn't, to be honest with you, I didn't really know what I wanted to do um, after school. Um, I studied international relations at Birmingham University. 
Um, and Birmingham. there, yeah, Birmingham. Um, and there I was able, I was studying basically politics, foreign affairs. Um, and I discovered I had a very weird and a very acute obsession with uh, Japanese politics. So that that's, a, that's, <laughs> that's like, whoa, I wouldn't have managed that. <laughs> I know. Japan's a long way from Northwest London, Finch. Yeah, and, and radically different. <laughs> radically different. Um, I think I won't, I won't get too much into it, but the actual politics of Japan, I think is fascinating in terms of, you know, the fact that they're not allowed an offensive army and they're only allowed defensive and kind of dependency on America and all this kind of stuff that it was like, they're so modern, like they're like at the forefront of kind of like technological advancements and economic at one time, but at the same time, they're so kind of trapped in history and they're like unable to move forward. Um, so I found it really fascinating. Um, and then I, I took that, <laughs> took that weird obsession and I went to Tokyo and I studied uh, Japanese politics and law for a year. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, was what was that like? I've never, one country, it's on my bucket list to go to. I've never been there. We were due to go last year and then we thought, before the pandemic, and then we thought 20 would be a bad year because the Olympics and, you know, everything, all the hotels mm -hmm. would be booked up. So we said we'd put it off till 2021. <laughs> Oh, yeah. famous last words, Paul. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So tell me what that was like. Oh, it was amazing. It was it was honestly one of the best times of my life. Like I I loved it. Um, I was able to, and obviously you know you can imagine coming from quite a religious sheltered background. I was then in Tokyo by myself, um, mm. in a country where I did not speak the language. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, and it and it was a lot. It was, but it was the best time. And I think it's one of those great examples of when you're in it, you're thinking, God, it's so difficult. And it's not, you know, it's not necessarily the smoothest of sailing. And to be honest, it's not it doesn't feel enjoyable in the moment. But then you look back and you're like, that was such an amazing, special time. Mm. And the growth that happened, although you can't mm. feel it when you're in it, when you're in the mix. But looking back retrospectively, it's like that was unbelievable. Yeah, and, and so you look, you're an outsider in Japan culturally. You're there on your own. It's very, very different. And what what strikes me, or I guess I'm curious about, is what that experience was like. You of being the outsider. In, in other words, did you feel like an outsider? How did they make you feel welcome? And also what you learned about yourself. Um, yeah, I mean, I like it. Obviously, it's a massive stereotype, like a positive stereotype. But like, I was never met with any kind of hostility. Like, it was very obvious. I did stick out like a sore thumb, just because of the like the immigration rates in Japan mm. is the lowest in in the world. I think it's at two percent. So ninety eight percent of the population is Japanese, and I'm quite tall. Um, mm. And naturally, I have very curly hair, so I really did stick out quite like a sore thumb. Um, I was always a good couple of, you know, feet taller mm. than everyone else. Um, and I mean, I people were so lovely. People were honestly so helpful. Um, it began to feel like home. Um, you know, mm. I was able to get a job 
despite I didn't speak any Japanese. Um, I was very fortunate that I had some really great uh, people who kind of saw me and, mm. and, and helped me out a lot. Mm. Mm. My perception of Japan is very traditional and traditional values. Yeah. And uh, then that kind of, I wonder, first of all, how true that is. And if so, as a woman, what was your experience like? Because again, and I'm only going by perception, Yeah, is that it's a very patriarchal society. Oh, for sure. I, I, <laughs> I had never been so aware of how, and it, this is in you know, air quotations, masculine. I am. <laughs> I was around these Japanese women who are so kind and, and it does, it's, it's, it goes back so far, like with their culture, but there's a real intense, like focus on having a very high pitched voice, being very giggly, very sweet and kind of looking as young as possible and definitely not rocking the boat. Mm. And I think anyone who knows me, <laughs> The opposite of me <laughs> so um when i was yeah making these and i had i had amazing female japanese friends um but just the difference in kind of expectations from their lives and standards in society and kind of like what job opportunities were realistic or expected of them was completely different and honestly i think sometimes you catch your white privilege and it was, it was kind of, it wasn't a white privilege moment necessarily, but it was kind of a moment when I was like, you know, I'm the first person to, you know, really be, because obviously I am a strong feminist, but when I saw that, I just thought, wow, like I take for granted how many opportunities I have and how there is no, you know, if, my, if I decided to be, I'm trying to think of a very masculine or typically male dominated job, if I decided, mum, I'm going to be, a builder i'm gonna be you know on a construction site whatever i chose to be she would never have an issue with it based off my gender mm. she might have an issue with it based off job security but she wouldn't have an issue with it based off well no you're a woman and what are you going to do when you have children and all those questions mm. those questions have never been something that i've been brought up with mm. that makes sense um what did you learn about yourself in Japan, because you, you said when you're in it that you don't quite feel it. It's like water, but then it's only when you come out of it you kind of go, "Ooh, you know." It's yeah. You have when you look back, you kind of go, "Well, I'm I'm different now." Hmm. Um. I think what I learned about myself is that I'm a lot more capable on my own than I ever thought I was. Um. And. I think when you're removed from everyone who's around you, all the forces that have brought you up, and it kind of, you can't say that being brought up, so I was brought up in a big family, I have three sisters, um, and I'm the youngest by quite a bit, so a lot of the time it can kind of feel like your personality is kind of, it's a result of the people that shaped you, the people that helped, you know, were there when you grew up, mm. and being separated for all, from all of those, all those external social forces, and being by yourself in a new country and it it sounds a bit you know cringy but it's almost like you realize exactly what your identity is and like what you are as a person mm. um so that's interesting because they say that in order to find yourself you have to go away and remove yourself from 
all of the influences that kind of in, that tie you down in some respects, that when you go away, you're, you're freed up. And uh, it, it's a brave thing to do as well. And I, I, I would I'd imagine you'd agree with me that if you can, you should do something like that when you're younger. A hundred percent. I think, yeah, I, I know that when I did it, you haven't, if you like, if you are fortunate enough to be able to do it, it's definitely the easy route to go somewhere amazing like mm. America, Canada and all my, I had a lot of friends who went there and I remember at one point I was just sat in a restaurant and I was unable to order just a bowl of food and I remember thinking, God, I wish I was in America right now. Yeah. But I mean, it's just you, you've thrown yourself in at the deep end, you've learned about another culture and you realise that yeah how beautiful that culture can be and, and, and just what you said reminded me of something as well i don't think anybody can appreciate it how disconcerting it is when you look around and all of the signs mean nothing it's like i, I remember this and again I, again if you look at japanese it's far different again i remember being in a moscow underground and all of the the signs and characters were in cyrillic uh, lettering yeah and and so I I I wouldn't I would, I don't know how to pronounce a squiggle like if it's if it's not shaped like an A B C D you don't know how to pronounce it so therefore when you're trying to figure out where you're going you're trying to physically or visually kind of map out stuff I would literally get on the on the, on the tube go one stop and then see was I going in the right direction yeah a hundred percent I honestly yeah. I would I because yeah it's the same it's when it when it's you, I had this silly, silly idea in my head that it was a bit like when I go to France or Spain and I can kind of work out what the word means. Um, and obviously I get there and everything's in kanji. So it's symbols and I'm like, I, I don't even, I don't. <clears throat> Give me a menu with a picture on it. Yeah, no, but do you know what? Actually, this is amazing. When you go to Japan, because you will go, so when you go to Japan, they have this amazing feature that they don't do for foreigners, but they just do for other reasons. Outside the restaurant, they have plastic models of all the dishes. Lifesaver, because I can point and I can go, that one, yeah. I want that one. Yeah. And um, yeah, that was a lifesaver. It's really strange. You'll see outside, like in the, almost like the restaurant window front, there's plastic versions dishes they serve and yeah i mean it's it's a whole thing there so yeah no i, I honestly can't wait to go i think and, and i love that i love places where you go and it feels like you're on a different planet because all of your points of references are are different and you, you, you then it forces you to think differently and uh, oh, yeah i, I look forward to that i remember so, the... so, sorry go ahead I was just going to say, I remember it was the silliest thing. The first thing that I was so excited to have was I was excited to go back to the UK and to go into a Tesco Express, pick up something and be able to talk to the person behind the counter, like the cashier. And it was the smallest thing, but it was so, it's a very lonely experience mm. where you cannot talk. You can't just say a hi, you know, the weather yeah. is bad or whatever small conversation you have those small human interactions mean a lot so when you came back what did you miss oh i missed everything i missed the food i missed the 
lifestyle changes that I had made. I, you know, I small things like on my weekends I would go to an onsen, which is kind of like a natural spring bathhouse, and it was like, this insane, insane experience, which was just like a casual thing to go and sit in a open water, fresh water which is really warm and you would overlook these mountains and it was just like yeah i think i'm gonna go do that after my lecture you know i think that's what i'll go do um and yeah the food i miss the food paul i still miss it a lot it's fantastic um and i also i came back and i was living back at home with my family and i was like Everyone go away from me. <laughs> that was difficult. That was really difficult, that transition. Yeah, I imagine because you had your own freedom and made your own decisions and now you're back home. That's, yeah, that all changes fast. Mm, so yeah. then talk to me about, so, so, so you're now back in the UK. Talk to yeah. me then about where you went from there uh, in, terms of, in terms of work. Um, so I came back and after four years of studying I was very very broke <laughs> I was very very broke um, I I'd never been able to kind of take borrow from family so it's all been kind of through loans from the government um, and obviously those stop when you stop uni so I was now kind of broke penniless um, and I thought well I just need to get a job instantly kind of like tomorrow and I just need to be able to earn some money so that mm. I can start paying for, for living um, so I got a job in a wine bar and restaurant um, and I remember so clearly I was sat down and they were like do you like wine and I was like I love it and in my head I was like no I do not and I had some embarrassing moments. See, that's, that's the salesperson in you coming out straight away <laughs> you were born for selling you knew I, it. He was like do you like wine I was like I yeah. love white wine I love that that color wine um yeah and I just remember like honestly it was it was a it was like you know anyone who works in hospitality knows it's really long hours it's really unsociable hours it's a lot of work because you're on your feet for 12 hours um and you're dealing with customers in the hospitality industry Mm. which even after cold calling I still believe working in a restaurant is more brutal. Um, just kind of the way that people get spoken to, it's just, it's it's enough to make you like feel bad for every single interaction you may have had. I've in a heard restaurant. that, I've heard, I've heard people, I've, I've never done it, my wife has done it and she, she has said and I've heard other people say that everybody should work in a restaurant because it teaches you a lot about how to treat people because of how you get treated unfairly it seems to be always um give me give me an example of something that maybe happened to you that kind of sticks out in your mind as something that was was one of those moments maybe i mean it it was it was more of a constant you know people would be snapping their fingers at me asking me this was the weirdest one i had never had so many people ask me where i was from and that i found particularly offensive because i'm Mm. from england Mm. but obviously i work and there's a lot of people who the hospitality industry depends on who are from other countries and 
to be honest with you, they're the more impressive people because they can speak more than one language. Yes, I might be from England, but I can only speak English, as my year in Japan has showed me. So that I found constantly offensive, not just to me, but to others. Um, I was asked many times sentences like, you know, what's your plan? You're not going to work in a restaurant forever, are you? Like, why are you working here? Also, just people generally being rude about, you know, mm. seafood and stuff. But mm. just a general look of, because we were serving them, you know, serving them, that that meant that they were above us and that they could treat us a certain way. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's all messed up, that is. It really is. Man. Yeah. It, yeah. It, was, it was a lot of work, but, you know, mm. it was... At the same time, like I said, in the time at the moment, in the moment, it was Ooh. really difficult. Yeah. And I went yeah. home one uh, one after my shift, and I was so embarrassed that I had said, you know, table five wants a bottle of the Rioja, and my sommelier was like, it's Rioja, and I was like, oh. and it was at that moment when I think the sommelier caught on that I had no idea about why. Well, I, I my I worked in England for eight years, and in my first couple of weeks. I worked in, in Redditch and I was asking about this place called Worcester. <laughs> and every, everybody was having a good laugh at that as well and, and Worcester sauce. And uh, say that again, Paul, say that again. And that you could tell, okay, it's not Worcester, is it? And, and England's, uh, there's so many places in England that are just like that. <laughs> that are, are spelled one way, but pronounced just different now i'm not saying ireland has them too there's no question about them but, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, Siobhan and, and saoirse and neve and yeah 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 honestly we have a couple of we have a couple of irish um people on our sales team at outreach and all of them when i've they've joined i've pronounced all of their names wrong and they've been like no it's you know no one girl kira but it's spelled c-i-a-r-a and i'm like yeah She's like, no, it's Kira. Here. Like, yeah. how? How does, how? Um, but no, uh, yeah, it's hard, but yeah. I was... Did I, see, did I see, Molly, that you worked in fashion some way? Yes, I did. I. So what you'll see is I've bounced pretty much all over and I've tried my hand at a lot of things. Mm. Um, so this was when I was at uni. I um, went and did an internship at a fashion company in New York. And I was alone. I lived alone then as well. Um, so I tend in, to do uni, this. I tend to in in your four years, you were in New York and in Japan. Yes. Wow. Yeah. That's fantastic. Mind you, you did go to Birmingham Uni, so who wants to stay in Birmingham? Hey, Birmingham <laughs> is the jewel of the Midlands, Paul. Um. Yeah, okay. Yeah, all right. I lived in Leicester. I lived in Nottingham. I know what Birmingham is ah, like. My, yeah. my parents are from Nottingham. So oh, very yeah. nice. Yeah. Lovely nice area. Yeah, yeah, it sure is. Sure is. But yeah, <laughs> so, sorry, I, I interrupted you. You were telling me about the, your fashion experience. I'm, I'm, what I'm cu really curious about, Molly, is because I want to talk about SDR role and your yeah. management role. And but what I really want to get to is what you learned in these roles and these experiences that put you in a good position when it came to mm. being in the sales role. Yeah. Um, so I think holistically, because to be honest with you, there are many random jobs that I've had. Um, I think holistically, I've realized 
from each of these that I am very um, competitive. <laughs> I don't do, I didn't, I didn't do well when I wasn't kind of, I didn't have like a, either a target or a goal to something and it was just kind of like a long continuous project. Yeah. I didn't really do well with that. I need to kind of see a goal so that I can work towards it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew that from my experiences and from my upbringing that I wanted something that would be able to provide the kind of economic stability that I wanted. So although people are like, sales isn't really that stable, um, I knew that if I, you know, worked really hard and I applied myself, then I would be able to work now and kind of give myself the stability in the future that I wanted. Um, Which took me to uh, Venetrix, the recruitment, the SAS recruiters, um, and through them, I came to outreach. Um, so yeah. Have you found your spiritual home there? <laughs> I really have. I think when I joined, I didn't really. I mean, obviously, I, I'm, I'm young, so I, I was, I was 21 when I joined, and um, what I was looking for in a job was you know, an opportunity to be around people that were similar to me, kind of like similar drive to me, Um, work at something that I loved, because I I mean, I come from a family where not everyone likes their jobs, Mm. and they're kind of trapped in that. And Mm. for me, looking like seeing that as I grew up was just like the last thing that I really wanted to do. So I really wanted, and that's why I've tried all these different things. And if I like something, I'll go with it because I want to fall in love with the work that I do. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I started at Outreach, I realized that I, to be honest with you, had struck gold. Um, And I was working obviously under Tom, um, Tom Carsley, and then uh, my now manager, Caitlin, came in. And it was like, I didn't have to stop growing. I didn't have to stop learning. Um, a lot of people, when they kind of leave education and then they go into their job, it can kind of feel very flat and mm. you know, just every day is the same. Um, and yeah, I've, I've, I've mm. never had that. <laughs> so what we know about you, Molly, is you're brave, you're courageous, you are competitive. You're obviously diplomatic if you survived five minutes uh, waitressing for sure because <laughs> uh, I, I I don't know how I would put I just mm, uh, so kudos to you for that and uh, you've, you know you you you'd many different experiences where you learn many things what I'm curious about is how the role of SDR because I, I actually have a belief that the SDR and it depends on how you define whether it's SDR BDO but any anybody making outbound calls at all to strangers yeah. that's the toughest sales gig you'll ever have and what I'm curious about is where where did that particular role, where did it really push you? Those moments where you kind of thought, is this for me? Or maybe not even, is it for me? But just where where you found that you, you had to dig deep to mm. grow within the role. Yeah. Um, I mean, that first moment where you pick up a phone and you call someone, there's always, you what the likelihood you know we have the stats we know how hard the job is and we know why it's difficult because you never know who is going to be at 
the person's going to pick up that phone and how they're going to respond. You can be like, they're going to love out and love outreach, but it's your job to kind of help why outreach is the right solution. Um, and say, I, and I always say this to all new SCRs, like, I don't believe for a second it's a bad thing to be scared of picking up that phone in the first the first couple of you know times that you do it because I 100% was um and you know even now when we do competitions where the management team kind of get involved and pick up the phone I still have that moment where I'm like I've got everyone looking at me in this room <laughs> I manage all these people I've really got to do a good job on this call mm. um and it's that adrenaline and it's that like buzz. I remember when I was an SCR, oh, hang-ups, knockbacks, and it all goes away as soon as you get that one win, that one little like, yes, and they start an opportunity and even more so when you find out that that's closed, that opportunity, um, and that we've won the business. Um, and you kind of can look at that and be like, and that's a real sense of pride that you can take in your work. Yeah, that feeling that you describe it of you don't know who you're going to get kind of reminds me, you see those uh, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here and they have the, the challenges where somebody has to stick their hand into a box that's oh, in the dark really? and they, they don't know what's in there. Right. <laughs> and, and it's just that trepidation. That's it. And then if it's positive, it's just it's and I, and I think that I think there must be something in that as well, that the elation comes because of the fear and the knockbacks and the pushbacks that if you didn't have those, there wouldn't be the highs. 100%, you can't have the highs without the lows because you wouldn't know, you, mm. there would be nothing to compare it to. So it's really the same with everything else. Like, you know, when you're having a difficult time and my manager, Caitlin, always says this to me and it works very well as a management technique, if someone's stressed, but when I'm really, you know, feeling like I'm being challenged, I'm being stretched and it feels uncomfortable, that's obviously the moment that you're growing. Um, mm. And that's not a bad thing. So it's not a bad thing that I would have, you know, hang ups and feel really, and it would, it would hurt, but it wouldn't hurt because, you know, of the, re of the rejection, it would hurt because it was like, I need to do better. Like I know the value that the product can give and, and that's like, that will drive you to kind of pick up because it's your duty almost to help the person even if at yeah. first they don't want your help <laughs> <laughs> that's and that's it and that's that turnabout always as well as at first it's it's there's an about face that takes place at some point where they're kind of now going they're they're chasing you almost um which is a, which is the sweet spot I'm, I'm i'm interested as well that so you're done you're doing the str i know you were in a team lead role for a yeah. while so there's a path. I'm wondering how smooth that was from SDR into management and what you learned about yourself and what kind of obstacles, because it is a very different skill set that you had to overcome now that you're a manager and it brings its own sense of trepidation and worries as well that don't necessarily exist when you're the captain of your own ship. Now you have a crew, it's different. It is completely different, Paul. Different, and I think that I was on a management call the other week and someone said, you know, you're all managers because you did good at your job. You were good ICs. So you all got promoted to being managers, but that's not what mm. makes a good manager. Um, yep. And I thought that was just so true. Um, I found the transition from SDR 
to team lead harder than I ever found being an SDR, mm. uh, which I don't think I, if I had kind of looked into a crystal ball, I would never have predicted. I kind of was like, I've done my hard work as an SDR. Now all I need to do is get people to behave like I did. And you know, that's what a manager is. A manager is just there to make people act like they did. How wrong I was. <laughs> um, so that was that was the hardest. Trash. How did you first discover that wasn't true? Oh, God. Um, how did I discover that wasn't true? Um, well, I, I mean, obviously, I, I've been very supported, like, through the transition. Um, there was a lot, to be honest, even there was a lot of, you know, I knew I'm very young. Um, I think when I became a team lead, I was tw I, 22, 23. And I was like, I'm going to be managing people that are way older than me. And there is this imposter syndrome that comes along um, to be like, you know, do you really have the authority? Do you really, can you really be telling or helping people? Um, and I was very fortunate. I had a lot of support in terms of like kind of coaching. Um, and I remember I sat on a Sales Impact Academy webinar and they were like, what did they say? Someone basically said, your role as a manager is not to create little clones of you. Your role as a manager isn't even to tell people what you would do. Your role as a manager is to coach people and help them figure out what they should do. Mm. Um, and obviously I was able to look up to Tom, who, as you know, is a big believer in that. Um, and Caitlin's the same. Um, and yeah, I guess I it was kind of uncomfortable conversations and you know, realizing that I had a team of people that unless I was there in the mix, helping them all, they wouldn't function. And I couldn't take like a day off, for example, because if they had a question, they would come to me and they would ask yeah. me and I'd get that little buzz when I could answer their question and feel really great about myself and be like, yeah, I just saved the day. Um, yeah. And, and created a dependency upon you. And now I've got a whole team who are dependent on me. Yeah. And yeah. Um, yeah, that was that was the learning curve. Yeah. And I, I don't know that you can be taught that. I think you have to experience it. Mm. Inte intellectually, you can hear that and you can go, yeah, yeah. But I, I, I think un until you're in it, I don't know that you can really experience or really fully, fully get it. I think everybody, I think there are certain lessons that people have to experience that they can't learn by just hearing it from somebody else. I think, I don't know. I don't have any evidence yeah, I, of other than a good feeling. I agree. Because you mm. hear it, you think you understand it, and then you go mm. through it, and then it's like, uh, kind of moment. Yeah. When you're like, yeah. I also think there's maybe part of it that you we hear a lot, but there's very little of that we can assimilate in, and we tend to be assimilating the kind of stuff that we are already going through. And so all this extra stuff is just noise that we don't pay attention to. So it's like yeah. air, aircraft coming into land. It's out there, but we keep saying fly around, fly around. And uh, it, it is, but it's a, it's a wonderful um, it's experience to, to, to do it. I regret I've never, I've never done it. I've never managed people in a sales environment, which, because uh, I started this 20 years ago when I was kind yeah. of in that place. So it's, it's kind of a regret that I haven't had that experience. 
because I think you have to have it. That, that's, I guess, well, where I'm coming from. If you want to come and take my team away, <laughs> you can take them. Um, I'm going to them immediately because I'm sure if they're like you, they're wonderful. I know no <laughs> doubt about it. Um, I, I wanted to, there was a question and I wanted to ask you now about the, the transition as well. Oh, yeah. I wanted to ask you were you ever in a position where you were managing people that you had worked alongside prior to that? Yes. What's yeah. that like? Um, so, okay. So, when I first became a manager and I was in my little team, I was, you know, very excited, I was a team lead, I thought that, and I have no clue where I got this, this from because my team managers are nothing like this, but I kind of went in really strong. And I think it probably came off the back of like, the kind of like imposter syndrome of like, I'm your manager. Like I, you know, decide and you know, you do what I say. Um, and that was just not how, and I realized that's not how I want to be with my team. I don't mm. want to be, I'm up here, you're down here. And we don't talk about personal stuff and you don't know me and I'm kind of like ice cold removed. Um, so now I manage a wonderful <laughs> team lead, Brad Smith. Um, and when Brad joined, I was an SDR with Brad. So we were both SDRs at the same time. Um, and I think that the way that like I work with Brad and there are no longer any SDRs on my team because they got promoted that I worked with, but there were a couple. I think the way that I tackled it, to be honest, was like, my job is not to tell you what to do. My job is just to help you be as successful as you can be. So you, you know, and it was kind of like a real open dialogue. Like, you know me as a human, I know you as a human, and we trust each other because we have that friendship and that relationship um and i'm going to support you how best i can and 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 that's how i navigate it really yeah it's, it sounds to me like it's the servant leadership model you're there to support them not the other way around yeah exactly okay. so where to from here Molly? what's next for you as you think forward where, what would you like to be doing in the future so this is the thing, Paul, because I did listen to your previous podcast in preparation for this, and I thought you were going to ask this, and I'm not going to lie to you, I don't have a very good answer, because I've been, if I, you know, start when I started, you know, a year and a half ago at Outreach, I would have never thought I would be here, um, kind of managing a team, I never even thought I'd go down management, um, so to kind of predict where... Yeah. I'll be in the future. I think would only be foolish of me mm -hmm. um, to try and have that kind of ignorance to think I know what I'm going to do next. Mm. Um, but I know that what I love doing is I love helping to build out SDR mm. teams. Mm. I was obviously one of the first SDRs in the EMEA region when there was only three of us. We all got hired together and it was just kind of like this blank slate. There was the you know the the kind of crux of the SDR team wasn't there, mm. and with Caitlin, we've been able to kind of build out this amazing team, and that's been the best part of the journey. Yeah. So, building yeah. out like a SDR team, 
Yeah. Exactly. It sounds to me like what you're saying, and it's probably similar to myself, is that you, you, it's very hard to see around the corner, and but it seems to be value-based as in, I don't know what I'm going to be doing so long as it encompasses this or so long as it includes that. And if those exactly. needs are fulfilled, you don't really care too much. I have seen on the other side, and I, I know a friend of mine, and I, he was a client first back in, I'd say, 2008, long time ago. And so I've watched him now, and he's very senior guy in a company. And he, he told me years ago, having, having a beer with him one night, and he had the whole thing mapped out. He was going to spend time in this type of organization. Then he was going to go there. Then it was this. And, and, and true to form, it's, and I, I, I can tell you right now, I couldn't tell you the name of the company he's going to be, but I can tell you it's going to be a startup. And then when he's finished with that, he's going to be go out on his own and, and then write a book. I'm not kidding you. It's that planned out. I, I don't understand that. I just don't understand. But, but kudos. I mean, it's some, it, whatever works, I guess. Some people need that clarity. Others are more kind of in the moment and just so long as I'm enjoying it and here's what enjoying yeah. looks like. Exactly. Yeah. I want ways and I hope to always have kind of the trust and faith that if I follow what I'm enjoying, then everything mm. else will fall into place. Um, mm. I think that the moment that you stop loving what you do is also mm. the moment you stop being good at what you do. So um, that's kind of what's yeah. going to drive me in the future. So what do you like to do in your part time in your spare time? If there is a spare time. <laughs> There is a spare time. Um, I have, and I want to say recently to justify the following sentences, but not really recently. I've recently <laughs> taken up golf. Um, and it's not really recently. It's actually been a couple of years now. But if I say recently, it justifies the level that I play at. Um, it's all perspective, Molly. If I said I took up something two years ago, that's recently. Okay. Thank, okay, fantastic. Paul, I took up something recently that something was golf. Um, yeah, so I, I play golf most weekends um, nice. with whoever has a spare, you know, six hours for nine holes. Um, and yeah, that's what I do. I love it's it. A, it's a great social uh, outing. There's no question about it. Um, yeah, well, I, yes, it is great social. I, in fact, I'm playing with Tom tomorrow. Um, and that is going to be a great example of uncomfortable yeah. in the moment, but great looking back. Will you let him win? <laughs> Will I let? Yes, I'll let him win. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Well, he's, Tom is used to losing. He's a Spurs fan, so he knows what it likes to feel to lose. <laughs> and to have that expectation that he'll screw it up at the very end. So there's no question about it. Uh, I'm going to do that just as he teased off. <laughs> We're always coming up to, to, to the hour, uh, Molly, and I wanted to ask you a couple of quick uh, questions. So, look, if you've listened to any of the podcasts, you know what I'm going to ask you next. There's two questions I tend to ask. One is, house is burning down, everybody's safe, you got your phone, that's the computer. What one item would you run back in and grab if you had time? What and item? Five. I would grab, I'm quite a sentimental person, um, my dad passed away when I was quite young um, and we've still got some kind of important pieces of his um, and he was a boxer um, not for profession but in outside work as a hobby mm. very good boxer um, and I have his boxing gloves 
oh, hanging wow. up. So I'd probably grab those because you can't replace those. Everything else, I'm pretty good with insurance. So. <laughs> yeah. How how well do you remember? What age were you? By can I ask? How well um, do you remember him? I was seven, so I do remember him. Yeah, and I'm curious to know in terms of the stories that you would have heard. Because I was a little older when my father died, but I'm curious to know about some of those stories. Like the boxer thing comes to mind in terms of your own personality. You know, somebody who's not afraid to to, to get into the ring. <laughs> and I'm just wondering if there's something there, because often we have these kind of inherited stories about people who are important to us, and it's almost in to kind of in in respect to their memory, we take on some of them. Oh yeah. And I'm wondering if you 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 sense that in yourself. Yeah, my dad, he was a um, a diamond setter in Hatton Garden. Um, so he, and it was his own company. So he used to wake up at half four in the morning every day and go down, or yeah, down to Hatton Garden suburb mm. in the city and would work all day until, you know, 8 p.m. at night um, to support, you know, uh, my, me and my sisters and my mum. And he, yeah, that work ethic yeah. is 100% something that yeah. I know, not just myself, but my sisters and I just always try and honour. Yeah, it's, it's kind of, a, yeah, it is. It's a way of keeping them alive as well when, they, when now they're part of you in terms of whether it's the ethic, work ethic that you're yeah. taking. I think it's a way, and that's, yeah, that's interesting. Um, last question for you, Molly, is when all this is over, and you uh, shuffle off this mortal coil, and there is a book written in about your life. What would you like the title to be? Oh God. Um, what would I like the title to be? I don't know what I'd like the title to be, but I hope it would be about how I positively impacted some people's lives, um, and that I helped people. She helped. That's <laughs> the title. I like it. We'll, 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 that's it. We've got it. We'll, uh, we'll register <laughs> the trademark on that one. Good stuff. Molly Grossman, I want to thank you so much for being my guest today. It's been an absolute joy. I've, I've really enjoyed it uh, immensely. And uh, thank you for giving up your time to, to, to be with me today. Thanks very much, Paul. It's been great.